In today's conversation, we speak with Dr. Lisa Patel, who received her undergraduate degree in biological sciences from Stanford University. After college, she worked in Egypt, Brazil, and India on international development projects with community-based organizations and nonprofits, focusing on conservation and development efforts. She then obtained her master's in environmental sciences from the Yale School of the Environment and went on to be a presidential management fellow for the Environmental Protection Agency, coordinating the U.S. government's effort on clean air and safe drinking water projects in South Asia and in collaboration with the World Health Organization. Realizing the critical and inextricable links between children's health and environmental issues, she obtained her medical degree from Johns Hopkins University and completed her residency in pediatrics at UCSF. She co-founded the Climate and Health Task Force for AAP-CA1 and sits on the executive committee for the AAP's National Council on Environmental Health. She is currently the executive director for the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health and maintains a clinical practice as a pediatric hospitalist, caring for newborns, premature infants, and children requiring hospitalization. Today, our conversation is focused on the intersection of human and environmental health. We talk about air quality, what it measures, what it is, and what it means to our health. Dr. Patel tells us about the different types of exposures to unclean air, including outside and inside our house, and how to protect ourselves from these exposures. Dr. Patel was an amazing guest, and I really enjoyed this conversation. We hope you do too. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Patel. Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm really excited to jump in about climate change and your expertise in the subject. I actually have listened to you a lot on hippo education, so it's exciting to be talking to you in person. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm excited to talk about an issue that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, so I'd love to just get started. Um, we we recorded an intro in the editing process. So people have already heard a little bit about you, but I love when um, folks give their own introduction because I feel like we leave some of the nuance out of of people's uh, passions. And so how did you, who are you? How did you become passionate in environmental health? And kind of when did you change that focus? So I am a pediatrician. I work at a small community hospital as a hospitalist, and I'm also an environmental scientist. So I, before I decided to become a physician, I actually initially worked in tropical forest uh, conservation and then transitioned over to environmental health and then went on to medical school. So I, I got into work on tropical forest and even from a, another connection, from a de- another discipline, which was astronomy, um, I loved Carl Sagan. And um, he was a a science communicator, an astronomist that died in the 90s. And he just had this incredible way about talking about how special our Earth is um, in this universe where we may be the only ones um, and how special the conditions on Earth are. And he kind of he has this one book called Pale Blue Dot where he talks about, you know, if a human stepped onto Venus or to Mercury, what, what that might be like, if that was even possible. Most of these places we would disintegrate right away. Um, but, but walking through the universe and then understanding how special the earth is as our only home, um, that, that was what really got me started initially in working in, in the environment at, at large. And then I transitioned over to environmental health um, when I was working for the Environmental Protection Agency. I was in India, in Mumbai, working on an asthma project for children. And um, 
they took me to a local hospital um, to sort of see their asthma education and treatment ward. Well, there were so many children, they had to rent a gymnasium nearby to, to house all those kids. And it, it started to build those connections to me between um, environmental degradation, fossil fuel pollution and health. And I just thought to myself, this is crazy um, that we don't even give ch kids a fair shot from the beginning um, from all the pollution that they're experiencing. I love how you tied all of your interdisciplinary focuses together into what you do today. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's just so much um, not only to learn from other disciplines, but I think it also gives us a lot of inspiration to to look to other places and, and weave them into what we do. Absolutely. So uh, I would love to talk a little bit about environmental degradation and climate health. So how is environmental degradation a public health crisis? Um, I think we think about all the various aspects of environment that go into our health. And so these are things like the air we breathe. So air quality, the water we drink, water quality, our, our lived space. And we're certainly encountering the lived space right now in terms of the worsening heat waves. I mean, there are stories of um, people in Phoenix falling on a sidewalk and having third degree burns um, from how hot the temperatures have been there and sustained over, over periods of time. And we know, for example, that um, that urban infrastructure and particularly traditionally redlined districts tend to be measurably hotter. Uh, and then in thinking about air quality and water quality as well, we know that, for example, um, places that had higher rates of COVID mortality during the pandemic um, also tended to have a places with higher burden of air pollution because being exposed to that air pollution is itself a determinant of health. And we know that low income communities and particularly black communities tend to be exposed to higher levels of pollution, again, because of redlining. And then water quality, um, you know, the there are many places that don't have access to potable drinking water. Jackson, Mississippi, for example, that has a higher minoritized population, uh, had an infrastructure that was underinvested in, and then they, they are a major city in the United States without access to potable drinking water. I mean, these are the very basic services that we should all expect. Um, in a country like ours, and uh, they determine our health. And, and there's a difference in who has access to clean and abundant resources such as these that we somewhat take for granted and who doesn't. And you mentioned that um, air pollution is an issue for some of these communities. What exactly is air pollution? What are some of the sources of air pollution? And how do we measure air quality? I think the, the biggest one, um, and it, it's like, a, it drives me crazy and I'm on a personal mission to change this, right? How much time do we spend discussing the Krebs cycle and how many medical students or physicians know what PM 2.5 is? PM 2.5 drives about 8 million premature deaths per year. Um, and it's not something that we're taught. And, and I think this is all changing, but, but we really need more of a public health focus around it. So, and, and a more medical focus around it too, in terms of education. So PM 2.5, particulate matter 2.5, that describes the diameter of this particle. And there are different diameters of, of particulate matter, but the ones that have implications for human health are 2.5 and 10. Um, and basically these are particles that are so small, um, they combine with water into droplets and we can inhale them. They enter our lungs, our vasculature and essentially set off an inflammatory cascade. Now, when we burn anything, whether it's fossil fuels or whether a wildfire is burning an entire city, it produces these tiny, tiny little particles that we're inhaling. 
Um, and we have a long history of, of data and very well established, established literature to say that breathing in the pollution from fossil fuels um, contributes to poor health outcomes. So things such as premature mortality, decreased lung function, asthma, premature birth, um, and certain types of cancer, for example. We can jump into the different sources of pollution for indoor air quality and also outdoor air quality. You already, already mentioned some fires and how to protect from wildfire smoke because that is ever increasing. And I I experienced a couple of wild, wildfires when I was growing up and I wasn't um, from a medical family. And so we didn't really necessarily know how to protect ourselves. No one was talking about it in the public health sphere. So I just wore like a bandana over my mask or over my face. So how do we protect ourselves from these wildfire exposures? Yeah. So, and unfortunately, you know, we used to think that wildfires were limited to certain regions of the U.S., but I think this past summer has taught us that there's really no part of the United States or the world um, where you are um, entirely immune from experiencing wildfire smoke. And so, um, in terms of wildfire smoke, I'll start by saying that, um, so I've talked about the evidence about PM 2.5. Um, we are just learning um, better what all the threats are for wildfire smoke in particular. But we know that the nature of those particles is different compared to fossil fuel pollution that we're always breathing because we burn fossil fuels. Uh, there was a study by Aguilera et al. in pediatrics, I think in 2021, where they took an air quality index of 50 if we were burning fossil fuels, and then they took an air quality index of 50 when it was wildfire smoke. Well, they found that 10 times as many children turned up with respiratory complaints when it was wildfire smoke, even for the same level of pollution. Um, now, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because when, when a house goes up in flames, there are paint thinners and chemicals um, that end up aerosolized as well, and we're breathing those things in. Um, and so it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that things these, um, these chemicals are probably more damaging, um, probably more carcinogenic um, and more concerning. And so it, it merits an even greater degree of caution. Uh, in terms of how you stay safe from wildfire smoke, um, unfortunately, a bandana uh, is not protective and there is some concern it could actually trap that pollution in and you breathe more of it. And so what we recommend is an N95 or a KN95 for a child is the best protection, but this is always about fit, much like the pandemic. And so just making sure that you have a good seal. Um, surgical masks, I hear different public health and air quality professionals say different things about it. I'm of the mindset that uh, some intervention is better than nothing at all. And so even though you don't get um, you know, up to an 80 or 90% protection from it. There are some studies to show somewhere between a 20 to 60% decrease in the amount of pollution you're breathing, um, which I think is certainly better than nothing um, if you aren't going to be willing to wear an N95 outside or you find it too uncomfortable. Um, so those, those are sort of the two options. The, the last option and the best one is to stay indoors as much as possible. What has frightened me, and, and we didn't have a chance to talk about air, or I can mention now how to read an air quality index. There are five pollutants that go into determining what the air quality index is. And those are ground level ozone, uh, the particulate pollution, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, and nitrogen dioxide, each of with, which have different health effects. On days of wildfire smoke, it's really the PM 2.5 that drives how bad that air quality index is. And what has been scary to me is that the AQI is supposed to run from zero to 500. There were areas I know in Tahoe last year when they saw really overwhelming smoke that it was 1,500, uh, 2,000. I mean, just levels that are insane to be thinking about. Um, and we don't really know what the health effects of that 
are going to be because we are living a really perverse natural experiment right now on what these exposures will mean for people's long-term health down the road. So we're doing those studies now and we'll probably know five or 10 years down the road what those exposures have met in terms of long-term health outcomes, particularly for those who are especially vulnerable, like children under the age of five where their lungs are developing rapidly. Um, two, two questions I have based off of what you just said. Um, first, like who are the most vulnerable populations? You mentioned children, they're five. So who should be really paying attention to the air quality index? I mean, I think everyone should, but who are most at risk and then how can we find the air quality index in our region? Sure. Um, in terms of who the most vulnerable are, so as I mentioned, um, children under the age of five, and I would say um, infants in particular for a variety of reasons, you know, under the age of five is a period of rapid lung growth, although your lungs don't entirely mature even until 20. So I, I would put really all of all of that age population in the vulnerability category with under five being even more vulnerable. Um, the other issue, the younger a child is pound for pound, they're breathing faster. So they're breathing in more of that air pollution uh, than an older adult would. So they're getting more in terms of dose. Um, their lungs are developing rapidly. And then children tend to spend more time outdoors than adults do. So they're potentially more exposed. The other um thing about children I would say under the age of two, you know, children under the age of two, we shouldn't be masking because of the suffocation risk. And so certainly if you're outdoors with a child during those periods of wildfire smoke, there's really not, not much you can do to protect them if you're outdoors. And so um, I would say exercise particular caution with, um, you know, having like a toddler or an infant outside during days of wildfire smoke. The other populations that are vulnerable, um, I would put pregnant individuals in that category as well. The emerging evidence on wildfire smoke and pregnancy are very concerning and disturbing to me. Uh, risks of premature birth, risks of low birth weight. Um, the, the evidence is still, I don't think, firm enough to talk about the risk of stillbirth, but it is an area of active investigation as well. Um, and then the elderly, I would put um, as another um, vulnerable population. Um, those that have chronic medical conditions are at higher risk um, for adverse outcomes, such as cardiovascular um, outcomes and, and mortality as well. And then I would think about occupational exposure. We've learned in the last few years that outdoor workers are tend to have less protections in place. And in some places, their, their protections are actually being stripped from them in places like Texas. Um, and so they are, tend to have less protection in place and will be exposed more to these hazards as well. And so we really need to be thinking about what we can do to ensure that people that are working in an outdoor space um, are as safe as possible or that they are given opportunity to not work um, without losing out on compensation on days where it's hazardous to their health to be outside. Yeah. And for these for these populations, how can we measure um, the air quality index and where can we find that in our area? Yep. So airnow.gov uh, has the air quality index that you can search for by your zip code. Um, there's another, there's a company called Purple Air where um, it, it's sort of an informal network of sensors and that can give you really localized information because they're basically registering the, um, because they're using their network of sensors that businesses, schools, or individuals might have placed. They can tell you really hyper-regional um, air quality in terms of what's happening on the ground. 
around. Um, we tended to, in, in our family, we would look at both airnow.gov, just get kind of a global sense of what was happening in our region. And then we would look at Purple Air as well to get, um, you know, what was happening in our particular area and then decide what our behavior for that day was going to be in terms of how much time we'd be spending outdoors. So with air pollution in general, not just from wildfire smoke, but also, like you said, fossil fuel um, burning and all of that. I used to live in New Orleans and the air quality index was never good. <laughs> um, so what do you recommend for um, reading this air quality index measurements? Because you said as a family, you would make decisions based off of what it was outside for what your activity would be. But if we're baseline already in the yellow, how do you recommend we manage our activity or how we protect ourselves. Um, I know it's a little bit nuanced and difficult, but. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think public health guidelines need to catch up with this. Um, so, you know, I should say that the air quality index was based off of fossil fuel pollution, not on wildfire smoke. And so there, this is not, this is not my formal medical advice, I should say. I'm just um, accounting for what I did um, as a mother to two young children uh, that were uh, two and, you know, my, my son, since he was born, he's now five years old. So pretty much every year of his life, we've had wildfires here and my daughter is now eight. Um, and so 2018 was the first, uh, one of the, not one of the first particularly terrible wildfire seasons we had. And that was the year he was born. Um, even in the yellow, uh, we would really limit our time outdoors, even though yellow says that, you know, it only applies to vulnerable populations. Um, I counted my son, my infant as vulnerable, and we would um, we would go outside when it was a period of wildfire smoke, 30, 30 minutes, a couple of times a day just for our mental health. And then orange and above, we would not go outside um, because I understood that for my son and my daughter, that these were no longer going to be, you know, once every few years exposures for them. This more or less was going to be a yearly exposure for them. And there were times when it's going to be a year long exposure for them um, during particularly bad wildfire years. And so I didn't take that for granted um, in terms of what their exposures were. I think our public health guidelines need to catch up um, to uh, creating separate guidance when we're talking about wildfire smoke, because I, I personally think for what the evidence shows, um, this air quality index reading on days of wildfire smoke is a little mis, um, not misleading is the wrong word, but, but I don't think reflects what the evidence is showing on how much more damaging wildfire smoke can be. Yeah. Um. And then you said that we should be staying inside as much as possible when the outdoor air quality is poor. But then we also have some indoor air pollution sources. <laughs> um, so do you mind talking about what those would be and how we can limit our indoor air pollution exposure? Yeah, and there, um, there's been some studies sort of looking at um, indoor versus outdoor air quality when you have no mitigating measures inside. And um, depending on your building envelope, the indoor air quality can get to just as bad <laughs> as outdoors. Um, if you don't have a good building envelope and you don't have the ability to do things to mitigate that indoor air quality, because that air kind of gets trapped in there and then you're breathing in that pollution. So a few things, um, there are increasing funds for, um, there are funds particularly for low income households um, for weatherization, for example, to create a better seal and a better building envelope. 
Um, I think a lot about my families, the, the, again, the ones that are going to be the most vulnerable are the ones that may not have the resources to invest. Um, having an HVAC system, so a heating, ventilation, and air conditioning unit within your home that requires some central build within your home to do so. And there are places that might have that. There are places that don't. And we recommend having um, at least a MERV 13 filter or higher um, as you think about protection from these really tiny little particles that, that you see under periods of wildfire smoke. In homes that don't have HVAC systems um, uh, or and or you can consider adding this as an um, additional layer of protection, um, you can purchase now these portable um, air purifiers. They used to be really expensive, but because of supply and demand, um, there is so much more demand for them, unfortunately, because of, of um, climate change driven wildfires that you can get a, a good one, I would say, for the 90 to $100 range. Now, um, the more expensive ones tend to be the bigger ones that have more power that can clean a bigger room. And so, if, again, if economics or finances are an issue, you can choose a smaller one and then choose a smaller clean room um, so that you have the right power for the room to clean. You just need to look at the specifications and kind of know the size of the room that you want to um, have the better air quality in and make sure that the, the max power of your air purifier matches the size of the room. For families that can't afford that, um, you know, there are many families who are struggling so much as to put food on the table. And so then, unfortunately, clean air becomes a luxury that they cannot afford. Um, it's good to know that there are resources now through the Environmental Protection Agency on how to DIY one for about $20. You take a, a box fan, you take a HEPA filter that you can buy online, and then you can duct tape it or nail those two things together. Um, and some of the informal studies that have been done on this, you can achieve about a 50 to 60% reduction in your particulate matter pollution indoors, which is certainly better than nothing. Um, on a policy level, there are, you know, we in the Bay Area, our Bay Area Quality District actually had an air purifier prescription program where there was an opportunity to actually give your patients who have asthma, who have a chronic medical condition, um, uh, these air purifiers to better protect their health. Um, and some of the exposures for air quality um, in the house, besides just not having good ventilation, are there other sources like gas um, burning stoves or anything like that that we should be uh, weary of? Sure. Um, so you shouldn't be vacuuming. That makes your indoor air quality worse or burning candle or incense. Uh, and then the, then gas stoves, I would say, is one of the most important pieces. So every month or so, another study comes out um, that makes should concern us more and more about uh, gas stoves in our homes in terms of our health. Um, we there are there was a study that came out, I think, a month or two ago that was measuring levels of benzene, which is the known carcinogen, for example, from burning gas stoves. Gas stoves also by burning them, uh, PM 2.5 pollution, carbon monoxide and nitrous dioxide. Um, that NO2 in particular is a respiratory irritant. Um, PM 2.5, we've, we've talked about the health effects of that. Um, there was a study that came out that said that about 11% of asthma cases are attributable to gas stoves throughout the country. Um, so we're actually putting a number on it. And so it has become part of my standard counseling, particularly to my asthmatic patients and um, my families that have young children to say gas stoves are a risk factor um, for, for respiratory um, complaints and asthma. Um, and so when you have an opportunity and there are actually dollars through the Inflation Reduction Act that families can take advantage of, 
um, consider switching out that gas stove. Now, if, if you don't have the means to do so, um, make sure you are uh, opening a window, you are running the overhead vent um, to try to, get to, to do your best to make sure that the pollution finds its way outdoors. During periods of wildfire smoke where you can't make sure that pollution goes outdoors, um, try not to use it. So you can actually buy portable induction cooktops for about $100 if you're a renter or if um, switching that gas stove out is really too expensive for your family. I'd encourage using toaster ovens, microwaves um, as alternatives as well on, on days of really severe wildfire smoke. I have a gas burning stove in the background. <laughs> You um, wrote the Climate Resilience Schools Coalition um, report, and I, I really loved it, loved reading through it. And why is it so important for us to focus on climate resiliency in schools and then just also education in schools? So um, what worries me uh, as an individual, as a mother, as a climate scientist, and as a, as a doctor is that we are not prepared um, for how quickly these threats are unfolding. Um, and frankly, I don't think that we as a society have the resources to do everything we can to prepare all of our vulnerable populations. So we need to start thinking about, we need to be mapping our resources and thinking about who are our vulnerable populations and where are the places where they spend the most time um, and making sure that those places are safe to do the best job that we can do from a public health perspective um, to protect the health of our citizens, of our of, of the res our residents uh, moving forward in terms of their health. So this to me is um, schools and children is the natural place. Um, we understand that children are more vulnerable to the effects of climate change and pollution. And schools are the place where kids spend the second most time after their homes. And so it was a very natural place um, on where we should be thinking about our public investments to, to create a climate resilient future for them. In the report, um, we really put up in front, up front and center the health inequity arguments uh, for why this is important. Um, we know that hotter classrooms and more polluted classrooms are both a direct threat to their health um, for things like asthma or heat illness. But we also know that it hurts their educational outcomes to live, be with trying to learn in a hotter classroom or a more polluted classroom. Um, we also know that days of, of lost learning rack up. Now we saw the worst example of that during the pandemic, but kids are struggling to catch up and we should do all that we can to ensure that we don't disrupt their education further. And if you look at the graphs of you know um, where the, the causes of missed days of learning are um, in places like California, days of wildfires are a big one for us here in the state and um, wildfire smoke and days of heat, for example. Now, obviously if there's an oncoming wildfire, absolutely schools should be evacuated. Uh, but if the, the question is really um, not being able to ensure that kids have a safe place to breathe um, or a comfortable environment to learn in, those are absolutely fixable. Those are things that we absolutely can invest our resources in, and we should be, um, because the alternative is sending our children into back to their homes, where there's probably even a greater likelihood, particularly for our, our children who are low income, that we are sending them directly into another hazard, right? When we have the public resources um, that we could invest towards ensuring their continued education in a safe learning environment for them. But finally, I, it, it, to me, it, it is an issue of justice. Um, children did nothing to contribute to the climate crisis, and yet this is the world that they're going to be inheriting. And we are seeing real, really um, sad 
rising level, levels of eco-anxiety, that children are inheriting this world that will be unstable, hotter, um, with less opportunity for health because we really did not act um, with the alacrity that we should have. And so thinking about what a climate resilient school looks like, it also demonstrates the solutions that children can take part in to be a part of the solution. So having those, um, and there was actually an interesting study that showed that just making infrastructure improvements, like putting solar on rooftops, um, for example, um, was less strong than doing two things at once, which was to have um, the solar rooftops, but then have um, like uh, CTE pathways to learn how you could become um, involved in the solar industry and what your place was in the climate movement and building the skills for an economy where we're really going to need those skills to solve these problems. There, there are just so many problems and there's so much opportunity as well. And we need to be thinking about from the beginning, teaching children um, the world that they are inheriting, but what, what the opportunities are also for them um, in their professional careers on how they can be a part of the solution. I, I love that you ended with that. Um, on Friday, I'm actually interviewing a um, climate change psychologist um, who uh, is specifically focusing on how people can lead is less focus on children, but like leadership and how to deal with your eco anxiety and all of that, because it is, it is an issue. And the, the most recent IPCC report, um, the last one that they, uh, put out was actually addressed like, uh, mental health and climate change for the first time. Um, so it's definitely being talked about more and I love that you can get the kids engaged and that can help, um, lower some of the eco anxiety. I think that, all of these, speaking of eco-anxiety, all of these threats can feel a little bit daunting, um, a little doomsday, especially for me who have just like experienced the earthquake and a, like a random storm that happened in Southern California that hasn't happened in 84 years. So um, what are you hopeful about? What are some of the policies that you think um, are uh, going to be helpful to pass that could change our future? What are some of the things that inspire you? I am really hopeful um, about the youth. Uh, I'll say I got my start in, in um, I was an environmental scientist in the prior life, but I really got involved in climate change from the 2019 youth movement. Um, because again, as a mom and a pediatrician, I was seeing kids having to fight for a livable future. And I thought, this is crazy. You know, we've failed them um, if this is how they have to spend their time. And so that that's when I went full-time into this. And I have learned so much um, and I felt so inspired um, by the moral passion and the moral clarity um, that the youth bring to this movement. Um, if folks haven't seen the testimonies or read about the youth in the Held versus Montana trial or Montana versus Held trial, I'd really encourage folks to check it out. Um, I actually sit on the board of our Children's Trust. And so it was really great, which was the legal firm that helped the youth. And um, we were talking about, they were talking about how it was really powerful to see the youth testify, but what was even more powerful was watching the parents watch their kids testify. Because up until that time, the parents sort of got it, but didn't really understand how this was gnawing at their, their souls and their sense of being and their sense of identity that the world that they had known and loved was being ripped away from them. Um, and how much that had affected the parents in turn, right? To, to really understand what those impacts were. Um, so that that's where I feel a lot of hope. Um, and, and I really try to take a lot from the youth movement and the activism that I do because what I am doing is for the generations below me. So I try to center their voice in, in what my, my personal actions are. 
In terms of the policies that give me a lot of hope, I've mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act. I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, the title sounds kind of boring. <laughs> and so uh, what the what a big chunk of the bill was, it was the largest investment um, the U.S. government has made to date in a transition towards a more renewable economy. Um, so about $380 billion to move our economy away from fossil fuels and towards renewable sources of energy. That is a huge victory. Now, um, I think many of us think that, uh, you know, if you, you follow football or watch football, it's... It'd be better to be at the the twenty yard line for a field goal, and we're more at like the forty yard line <laughs> in terms of meeting our targets. Um, and so there's more work to do uh, to move our move us a little bit closer to ensure our success and avoid catastrophic warming. Um, along those lines, the Environmental Protection Agency is considering a suite of rules that would help rein in carbon pollution. Now, as we can expect, um, the fossil fuel industry that is always going to place their profit above our health is buying out politicians or buying communications campaigns to try to um, misinform the public about um, what the intention, what their intentions are. Um, and that's unfortunate. And we need to stand strong and firm and say um, the industry has benefited off of our poor health. And now it is time for them to do a better job regulating their pollution and the Environmental Protection Agency should do its all. And so we um, mobilized the health professional network of a thousand comments on um, one of the EPA rules to help clean up power plants in particular, for example. Those things give me hope. Uh, 2024 gives me a lot of anxiety, I'll be honest, <laughs> because um, there was a report put out by the Heritage Foundation um, that uh, is apparently going to be the basis for a Republican candidate moving forward. And I don't want to bring politics too much into this because climate science and climate change should be a nonpartisan issue, but it has been turned political. And that Heritage Foundation report basically doubles down um, and says that they want to do everything they can to turn back the investments we made in renewables, um, to deregulate the Environmental Protection Agency and invest more in fossil fuel infrastructure. And that is 100% bananas. <laughs> so um, I would encourage everybody, and again, not to make this partisan, but to make this an issue of our health. Um, and have a livable future, regardless of what political stripe you are, to talk to your decision makers and say, this is not a political issue. Um, fossil fuels are bad for our health and it is long past time, especially when we have the technologies and we have the funding and the will to do so to move towards renewable energy. Yeah, I really love how you framed that because uh, you don't, and we were also taught as like physicians never to bring, you know, partisan um, rhetoric into the clinic, but if it's based off of our health and they've changed, if they turned like science um, partisan, then it's a little bit hard to to not even get involved with the politics because it, it really and is about say, a future. Yeah, I, I often hear um, for the people that are hesitant to discuss climate change that they think it's too political. Um, there was an interesting study that was done by my colleague Andrew Lewandowski in Wisconsin, where he asked this very question. And it turns out that even amongst those who count themselves as conservative or Republican, they don't mind hearing about climate change from their doctors. Um, so to those who think that this is too political or potentially explosive to bring up, um, I would counter, it is no more explosive these days than discussing vaccines or masks. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's, it is unfortunate when we turn issues of public health into the issues that are partisan, but we should always do what is grounded in health and advocating for a transition off fossil fuels is grounded in health. 
I think we talked a little bit about the future and the children being the future, but we do ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Health. <laughs> I would say the future is health. Um, and can I add one more word? The future is just, um, because I think um, health without justice is not meaningful to me. Um, I, what, what I also worry about as, as we move forward and these threats multiply is that and resources become scarcer is that um, those that were made vulnerable become even more vulnerable because we will not attach an equitable lens on how resources get distributed or used or who is protected. And so uh, we at the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health um, never talk about health without talking about equity because those two things must go together when we think about who's impacted by climate change and who did the least to contribute to it. And, and I think things that many of us take for granted, um, clean air, clean water, uh, is something that some people have to invest too much of their time in, in assuring for themselves and their families. And that is unjust. Yeah. Dr. Patel, this was a really great conversation. Is there anything else that you would want to leave our listeners with? I would say, you know, people often ask me, I'm concerned about climate change. Give me like one high impact thing to do. Um, and I say vote. Um, that is the, uh, you can cut back meat if you want, you can buy yourself an electric bike if you want, but what we need is systemic change. So the greatest climate action you can take is to vote. And then the second greatest is to get your patients, friends, and colleagues to vote as well. So I want to put in a, a plug uh, for Vote ER, uh, which is a nonpartisan organization. Again, you're not telling your patients how to vote. You're just ensuring those who have um, historically um, not had access to voting for systemic barriers, you're helping to address that barrier in your clinic context. It's a badge um, that, that you carry in your clinic and you help you bring up the conversation about voting and help them get registered. I love that. Thank you so much. 